Welcome to Oxpods, the podcast by students and their professors at the University of Oxford. Literature is full of talking animals, from modern works like Paddington to Middle English works like The Owl and the Nightingale. But why do writers create non-speaking animals to speak? And why employ animals in literature at all? I'm Chloe Smith, an English student at Brasenose College, and today I'm joined by Dr Eleanor Parker, a world-famous lecturer in Old and Medieval English, to find out how medieval poets wrote about animals. Thank you very much for coming on to Octopods. So today we're going to look at medieval poets' use of animals in that phrase, specifically through the Owl and Nightingale. So to begin, what is going on in the Owl and Nightingale, and what's the context of the poem? Okay, yeah, so this is a poem from the late 12th or early 13th century, um, and essentially the setup is that we are supposed to be overhearing um, a debate between an owl and a nightingale, um, and they are arguing with each other, uh, and what they're mostly arguing about is themselves, so their own characteristics, like their own habits, their appearance, their the places that they live, the quality of their songs, all that kind of thing, and they, they insult each other and then they defend each other from their attacks. So it gets quite um, lively and virulent and and, uh, offensive at various points. Um, And the debate doesn't have any solution. It's not really clear whether one of them is supposed to be more sympathetic than the other or one is right and the other's wrong. I think most readers of the poem find that at different points the owl is more sympathetic and the nightingale is more sympathetic at other points. Um, But at the end of the poem, it's still left very open-ended. There's no sense of one of them is clearly the winner. Um, and that kind of makes sense because if they're just arguing about their own characteristics, you know, how could one of them be <laughs> clearly the winner? Which of them is better? We, we still don't know. Um, and so in terms of context, um, it is a very playful, very funny kind of poem um, because they're, you know, so insulting towards each other. Um, but it is drawing on some, uh, d- a few different genres of medieval literature which use animals for more serious contexts. Um, so one of those is the tradition of the beast fable, so the animal fable, um, which is a kind of story where you know human characteristics are projected onto uh, animals, and that's the kind of literature that you find in you know cultures across the world actually. So not just in um, medieval literature. Then you've got the genre of the bestiary, so the kind of book of beasts, um, which is uh, a genre going back to uh, Greek and Roman literature, and then very very popular in the Middle Ages. Um, where it's like an encyclopedic collection, compilation of descriptions of animals, um, often illustrated uh, with the little pictures of the animals, uh, again, kind of describing their habits and their appearance and assigning some kind of interpretation often to them, like a moral or an allegorical interpretation. Um, And then the third genre that this text is also drawing on is the tradition of debate poetry, which is a very popular genre, um, especially in England and France around this time. Um, and there you have a, a kind of setup where opponents are having a sort of constructed or literary debate, and it's often um, a, a setup where the two people are representing, two figures are representing kind of different attitudes to life or different classes in society or some kind of binary set of opinions or something. And sometimes those are birds. There are other poems where the opponents are birds. Um, so Chaucer's Parliament of Fowls is also an example of, of debate poetry using birds. Um, but you do also get uh, debates where it's human um, opponents, like from different classes or men and women or whatever, um, or other kinds of personifications like winter versus spring. Um, so there's quite a lot of variety in the kinds of people who can be debating. Um, but 
one thing that we really see, especially in the Alan Nightingale, is that there's a sort of interest in debate itself and whether debate and argument is a useful way of letting people air their different opinions or sort of comment on each other. In the debate, there's obviously opposition. Uh, there's an opposition between the album and Nightingale. I know one of the open lines is the period is they haven't. The album and Nightingale hold a great debate. Mm. Um, and they talk a lot about this word coming, meaning kind. Um, could you talk, tell us more about what kind means, and especially what does it mean in this context? Yeah, so the Middle English word kunda um, is related to our word kind, as in like mankind um, or animal kind or whatever. Or if you talk about like the kind of things, it's, re- it's like a kind of class or a category of things. Um, but in this case, it, it specifically means nature. And like an animal's kunda is its nature. Um, and that means it might be like um, its physical appearance. It might be the ways it naturally behaves. It might be its kind of instinctive habitats. Um, the other kinds of birds that it's related to by nature, all those sorts of things. Um, so they each argue about what their kunda is and kind of, you know, base their arguments on who they identify themselves as by nature. Um, so one good example is where the, the nightingale attacks the owl for being kind of predatory, for being a predatory bird and like, you know, eating mice and so on. And the owl says, yes, I do do that, but that's my kunda because I'm a bird of prey. So I can't be blamed for what my kunda is. Um, so they're both sort of defending their own sense of their nature. From a medieval perspective, um, an animal's nature or its kunda, obviously we would understand that as being like the product of evolution, right? And it's developed over a very long time to sort of have that nature. Um, But as uh, someone like the writer of this poem would understand kunda and nature generally as something that's been created by God. So if you're trying to understand the nature of an animal, you're not thinking about how it came to be in that way you know, in order to live a certain in a certain habitat or whatever it might be, you're thinking about how it was designed as part of a very large design, huge universal design of everything in nature, including human beings. Um, and that's why this kind of poem and, you know, the bestry tradition as well and other ways of thinking about interpreting animals, um, why they have this sense that there's like a meaning in animals' nature that you can read into it or something that you can understand from it. Um, and it's not necessarily a static interpretation because, you know, you've got the, the details of an animal's nature and then there are different ways that you can interpret that. Um, but there's, it's almost like there's some kind of meaning written in the book of nature that you can sort of access if you learn to observe and to, to sort of interpret it properly. So if there's something inherent in sort of the nature of the owl and the nature of the nightingale, has it been created because of circumstances through God's design? Is there anything in the name of the owl or the inherent characteristics of the owl and the are specifically that would help us understand the story and the kind of thing that arguing about? Mm. Yeah, so the name of the birds, I mean, obviously the name Nightingale pretty naturally describes what it does. It sings at night and that makes it, you know, and they talk about the meaning of the name um, in the poem that it's a night singer. Um, the word Ula, which is the Middle English word for owl, the nightingale attacks the owl as a, <laughs> on the basis that it's um, fula, fowl, right? As if being the fact that its name rhymes with fowl kind of tells you something <laughs> about the bird. Um, And I mean, that's one way, that's an example of a kind of etymological argument that 
sometimes people are very fond of, you know, that the meaning of a word can tell you, or the history of a word can tell you what it means, or what a word sounds like can tell you what it means. And those arguments aren't necessarily always based in, <laughs> kind of grounded in uh, reality or real etymology. Um, so whether the nightingale is meant to be taken seriously when she says that, maybe the fact that she's not a very uh, very nice bird altogether kind of makes us think she's taking a bit of unfair advantage of the fact that Fula and Ula happen to rhyme. But there were some medieval thinkers who would say that um, you can tell something about the nature of an animal from what its name comes from, because as with nightingales, sometimes the name of an animal does reflect something about its nature. That's really interesting. And if, so there are arguing all the owl's nature and the nightingale's nature, but is there any sense in the debate hearing that they're not arguing just about the bird qualities? Do the birds represent anything in the debate further than their owlness? <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely. So over the course of the poem, the birds sort of take on sets of associations and things that they align themselves with. Um, so they, they are talking about themselves as birds and they kind of, they retain this sense always that they're birds, but they, they kind of align themselves with these sets of binaries that, that kind of shift as the poem goes on. But in general terms, you can sort of summarize it as the nightingale, going back to you know classical tradition, is a bird that's associated with lots of nice things. So like spring, beauty, youth, love, uh, romance as a literary genre, um, music and poetry and all that kind of stuff. Um, and she is very proud of being associated with those things. And then on the other hand, you've got the owl, which is a, a solitary bird, a bird that you know, um, flies by night. Um, and in the poem, she associates herself with a much more sort of serious attitude to life. Um, so she imagines herself, uh, although she's a bit, you know, not, again, not to be trusted really, she imagines herself as a sort of a moralist, like uh, someone who would give sermons or remind people about the important, serious, weighty things in life. Um, so you can kind of describe the, the opposition between them. I mean, it's like sort of upbeat, downbeat, or optimistic, <laughs> pessimistic, um, but also at different times they align with like um, different classes in society. So like the nightingale is very proud of singing to knights and ladies in castles and so on, whereas the owl thinks of herself as something a bit more aligned to uh, like to, to monks and people living a religious life because she's serious and you know solitary and, and lives a life of contemplation in her little own kind of hermitage. Um, and they also kind of align with things like, you know, the owl is more a wintry bird. She talks about the fact that she cheers people up at Christmas when they're, all other birds are, you know, have um, flown away. Whereas the nightingale is very proud of being the bird of spring and summer and like the beauty of spring and all of that. So if it's a metaphor, the extended metaphor would be inconsistent. Well, I think it's kind of deliberately not consistent because I think, first of all, both of the birds, it's part of the comedy of the poem that both of the birds have a really inflated sense of their own importance and they don't see themselves clearly. Like they think of themselves as being a certain way, but we as readers of the poem can see that, for instance, the owl wants to be this sort of serious weighty moralist, but she's also very easily offended by the nightingale um, and gets you know, angry and, and is impulsive and <laughs> insulting and so on. So she's not like a great moral character. And the nightingale who's associated with lots of lovely things like beauty and youth and stuff, is also quite frivolous, quite obsessed with appearances and very, again, a very nasty kind of debater when she's attacking the owl. Um, so I don't think we can, you know, really read the poem as actually setting out these two attitudes to life and, and almost like giving them a fair hearing. Our sympathies shift as we're reading through the poem and part of the joke, I suppose, is that neither of them wins. Like there are advantages on both sides, they both make some good points, but they undermine themselves by their own foolishness as well and hypocrisy and like inability to see themselves clearly so just to talk about different 
the literatures with animals in. In Aesop's fables, like the Tosses and the Head, the writing uses almost the natural features of animals to illustrate a moral point to humans. Like, the, the head is fussed and the Tosses is slow, and this is moralised to suggest, like, slow the steady with the race. Right. Um, so do you think writers knew the animals in the stories because they understand the attributes of the animals, like they understand the fastness and the slowness, or because they only understand that very reductive aspect of the hair and the tortoise that they're either fast or slow. Hmm. Yeah, I think the thing about animal fables is that they can do different kinds of things. So they can be kind of simple in the way that you're describing with the tortoise and the hare, um, where it's like, it's a deliberately simple story because it gets that point across in a, a clear way and a memorable way. Um, you know, everybody knows that story. And once you've heard it once, then you, you know, you kind of, it stays with you. Um, and, and that's one reason that fables can have often been used throughout history in sort of educational contexts. They used to teach children and so on because they are a clear and entertaining and memorable way of getting across that kind of moral point. Um, but they don't have to be simple. They can actually be much more complex. Um, and medieval fables are often exploring kind of more nuanced dynamics and different ways of thinking about animals. Um, so Chaucer's animal fables are much more nuanced. Um, and the, the, the animal fables that his contemporary Robert Henderson wrote are incredibly complicated in, in moral terms. Um, and, you know, the literature is often interested in the fact that you can actually interpret characteristics of animals in different ways because you've got the characteristic, but then the act of how you interpret it is another step, right? So um, there's this question of, of sort of interpretation that comes into it. Um, and like with the horse, tortoise and the hare, even that's one way of telling the story, but you could describe those animals in different ways and tell a very different story with them. Um, so one example in The Owl and the Nightingale is that they talk about the fact that it's the nature of the owl to fly by night. Okay, and one way that that can be moralised in bestiaries is the way that the nightingale does it. She says, well, you know, wicked people like the night. Obviously, people only go out at night if they've got something to be ashamed of. So criminals and, you know, wicked people go, um, are associated with nighttime. So you can kind of make that into a moral point and say, you know, if you're not doing anything to be ashamed of, you should be happy to um, see light in a, uh, not just literally in the daytime, but also in a sort of symbolic sense that like you can let light in on your doings if you've got nothing to be ashamed of. Um, but the owl's res response to that is to take the same characteristic, but describe it in a different way, interpret, to interpret it in a different way. So she says, well, I fly by night because people do that if they've got some serious work to do. You know, if, if you're like the night again, <laughs> or lazy people who kind of lie, lie about and never do anything serious and just like entertain themselves and only care about pleasure or whatever. You, you know, you, you, it doesn't matter. But um, she compares herself to um, warriors, for instance, who they travel by night because that's when they're doing their serious work. Or uh, the idea of the monks that she compares herself to who kind of get up at different times in the night in order to pray. And it's like a deliberately self-sacrificing thing to do, but it's because nighttime is a time for solitude and contemplation and sort of, you know, that more serious uh, attitude that she's trying to align herself with. So the essential point of the characteristic they're discussing is the same, but they both moralise it in, in opposite ways um, and and so you know as a reader of the poem you don't know which of those interpretations is right you're able to work on that interpretation yourself so that's one way that fables can be helpful in learning about how to interpret stories actually learning the idea that um, 
the stories don't have any one meaning <laughs> actually they can be used to make different points and that if you were somebody um, like uh, someone a medieval writer who was learning how fables might be used to make arguments for instance like in a sermon um, you're learning that a story can be applied in different ways depending on what your purpose is what your rhetorical goal might be you can use the same story and get different things out of it um, and I think one of the reasons that the Owl and the Nightingale is not a simple poem, even though it sort of seems on the surface like it's quite simple, is because actually the boundary between the human and the animal in this poem is just constantly being blurred. Um, like the birds are, are completely birds in one sense throughout. You know, they, uh, they clearly have the appearance of birds and they think of themselves as birds and they have the sort of habits and eating habits and so on of birds, like they're entirely birds. But at the same time, they're talking and reasoning and arguing like humans do. And the things that they care about when they're making their arguments are not things that birds care about. You know, it's things that humans care about, like... Um, you know whether they're attractive to other people whether they're useful to other people um they both really desperately want to prove that they're useful to society birds don't care about stuff like that that's stuff that humans care about so it's a kind of unsettling blurring of the boundary between the human and the animal that's just you know never resolved in the poem and that's not simple at all actually it's quite puzzling <laughs> that's really interesting i'm linking on to that um about the blurred boundary between sort of animal and human being quite confusing it reminds me of um, recently, I read Derrida's The Animal That Therefore I Am for university, um, including sort of the opening passages where Derrida's, he's getting in the shower, there's a clear, see this cat, but he's like, <laughs> doesn't want my cat know that I'm vulnerable to him getting in the shower. So that sort of suggests an unknown between the blurred boundaries of human animal uh, sort of confusion, because obviously they live with a cat, so that's very normal to us, but also do we understand the cat? Um, so I was just wondering whether sort of we use animals in literature as though they're like a perfect other, maybe, or whether we actually understand some aspects. Mm. I think, yeah, I mean, that, that aspect of the cat, that Derrida is imagining the cat looking at you and that gaze kind of inducing a sort of shame or embarrassment, like you're embarrassed to be looked at by an animal because the animal is so entirely other from the human. It's like you always start to break down the category or the distinction between human and animal because you know, you're suddenly the object of the cat's gaze. Um, there is an aspect of that in the Alna Nightingale actually because we do see them talking about humans and you know, they're a bit scornful of how human beings behave and like the owl kind of makes fun of people for, uh, she says, well, the nightingale, like tempts women to adultery and stuff like that. <laughs> so we see the foolishness of humans through the eyes of these birds, um, like Derrida's cat. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things about medieval uses of animals in, in literature is that they are interested in, in the fact that human beings also have this kind of dual animal and human nature. You know, it's not always clear where the boundary lies between the human and the animal within us, you know, within the human, any more than it's clear in this poem where it lies in the birds. Um, because, you know, we are animals, we have animal bodies, we need food and sleep, and we feel kind of animal impulses like anger and, and lust and all that kind of thing. Um, so in that sense, we, we are animals, but then also we can talk and reason and speak and um, and so on as animals can't do and then obviously from the medieval christian point of view the distinction would be that we have souls as well as bodies and animals don't have that um so the boundary is really blurred in us as well um and that's one reason why animals are a way of reflecting back onto human characteristics because we see ourselves in the animal um 
and in in the and the nightingale it's kind of one of the jokes i think that when the owls are the where birds are being most foolish and when we might be tempted to feel superior to them is actually not when they're behaving like animals but when they're behaving like human beings because <laughs> it's when they're being vain and selfish and um hypocritical and so on and birds are never hypocritical but human beings are definitely <laughs> hypocritical yeah. sometimes just so like now off asking here about animals in literature specifically in the owls the nightingale how do you think we can learn from poems like this one and indeed like medieval literature all literatures that discuss animals to think about our use of animals in the present which is very contentious at the moment and maybe winding that to like our environment mm. a way to think about something we interact with but you could say engages with us back but it's in a it's in a dubious way yeah i think the interesting thing about looking at the kind of medieval interactions with animals or, or relationship with animals the way animals are used in literature is that we do see different ways of thinking about how humans interact with the natural world including animals um, and you know we are familiar with certain ways of of using nature or uh, kind of exploiting nature from our point of view in a very technological society a kind of post-industrial world where a lot of people don't have direct contact with nature generally and, and with you know animals even in sort of farming context or whatever um so in one sense you know in scientific terms we know much more about our relationship to the animals and like the history of where you know it, um uh, how humans fit into the the animal kingdom than anybody did in the middle ages but then people have always been interested in thinking about the similarities between humans and animals and where those parallels lie so that's not a new idea um and i think that medieval ways of thinking about um, the natural world more generally a very integrated sense of how humans fit into creation as they tend to think of it rather they don't really think about the natural world but everything is creation and we're part of creation too um, and we are very set apart from the natural world I mean the, maybe the very concept of nature as distinct from humans reflects our perspective more than it does yes. you know the medieval perspective um, and that might be partly how it's so easy for us now to exploit nature and disregard it and, and sort of we feel like we're completely in control of it and that we can control everything and that leads to exactly the kinds of um, you know environmental crisis that you're talking about this sense that um, you know actually there are limits on our control of nature and that actually that's not a sustainable or healthy or ethically right way to live in any case so going back to these older ways of thinking about nature and, and, um, and animals and so on might help us to I don't know, reset the balance a little bit between the human and the non-human and, and like not privilege the human perspective so much, um, but to see ourselves as more um, integrated into that kind of world and in a, in a healthier way. Yeah, I, I find that really interesting. And especially because like, as Sarah, we now live with like cats and dogs and things, but we still like eat pigs. Mm -hmm. I assume also medieval people would eat pigs, but at least they mm -hmm. lived with like- Right, they, they knew where their pig meat had come they from. They knew where their pig had come from. <laughs> Actually, like, grown up with the pig though it's sort of more harmonious doing so good to talk do you like to tell about your new book my latest book is winters in the world a journey through the anglo-saxon year um which is sort of about attitudes to nature and the seasons but from a specific uh, anglo-saxon point of view thank you for listening to this episode of oxpods if you enjoyed it please do recommend to a friend and check out our episodes from other channels too to keep up to date with episode releases, to suggest ideas for new episodes, or to get involved with recording, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go straight to our website at www.oxpods.co.uk.